Good morning. Welcome to SawCast number 39. This production of SawCast is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willink Productions and his technical staff. Welcome, Carrie. And my name is John Strykermeyer. I'll be your host today. And we're taking a little different tack here today. Uh, one of the stories that has been ongoing since we've done our series here and, and as well as my interviews with Jocko Willink previously on his podcast is about SOG being compromised. SOG was the eight-year secret war, and during that war, we had the highest casualty rate, and we always wondered why. Well, today we have a special guest with us who did not serve in SOG, but has insights on the compromise aspects which begin with the USS Pueblo being seized in North Korea. I want to welcome Larry Sayre. Welcome, sir. Thank you. And Good we have two books, excellent books, uh, by the way, from his time in Cambodia. And uh, I recommend it, Reading for All. And uh, like we said when we first started there, the USS Pueblo was seized in early 68 by the North Koreans at the behest of the Russians. Yes. And when they came into port, the Russians took a lot of their radio encryption uh, equipment, state-of-the-art for 1968. Correct. What was unknown was that it went back to Cambodia and other places, but the key thing was for the impact on the war was the Cambodians were able to work, or the Russians used it there. And here's another sidebar. This is from my book, On the Ground, because the, the sidebar to this was from 1967 until 1985, Navy sailor John Anthony Walker Jr. provided the KGB with vital U.S. cryptographic secrets to decipher coded military messages. Soviet KGB General Boris Alessandrovich Solomatin, who oversaw Walker, later called him, quote, the most important spy ever recruited by Russia. John Walker gave away the keys to our most secret code machines, giving the Russians the equivalent of a seat inside the Pentagon. After those revelations surfaced publicly, I wondered if Walker's traitorous treachery had led the Russian who had talked to Lynn Black and Letourneau, we'll talk about those later, and if Walker's information helped the NVA to learn about the LZs and other selected information at that time. Larry, talk to me a little bit further. Could you have more... Of a, uh, as a Navy officer who served in Cambodia, an intelligence officer. And again, that's what NILO stands for. NILO, Navy Naval Intelligence, intelligence Liaison, Liaison Officer. officer. For Army, I, I need an interpreter on that. <laughs> Help interpret, sir. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? The NILO? Yes, sir. First, then we'll go yeah, right to the club. Okay, well, let me just give you a little background. Sure. Um, the original uh, intelligence officers, naval intelligence officers from, I don't know, about 65 or so, or maybe earlier, were attached to the boat groups, like the PBR, uh, swift boat guys, right, sure. things like that. And they reported directly to the group commanders. Uh, they, <laughs> I was told that that was called SL. 
J.O., shitty little job officer, <laughs> because all the, the local commanders were interested in is just tell me if they're going to shoot my guys and my boats and stuff. They weren't really concerned with any bigger picture. Um, what, what happened was uh, uh, when, when Admiral Zumwalt came in and took over uh, naval forces in Vietnam, he and his chief of staff, uh, then Captain, eventually Vice Admiral Rex Brectanis, uh, started looking at uh, the reports. We had uh, Paul Baker was a, a computer science and math uh, graduate who took over the Cambodian shop, and he started plotting the uh, The reports of captured weapons, weapons right. caches, how many they captured, how much ammo, mortar, all that stuff. And it suddenly became apparent that a lot of this weaponry was coming th through Cambodia at, across, and dribbled across the border into Vietnam to supply the Mekong Delta, the Viet Cong forces in the Mekong Delta. So, so Zumwalt uh, set up boat barriers. We had PBRs and swift boats all along the Cambodian border on night ambush and during the day on patrols to catch these guys infiltrating weaponry across the border. Um, th there, there had been a dispute during the whole Vietnam War between the Defense Intelligence Agency, specifically the naval intelligence component of that, the, the Navy and the Vietnamese Navy had an SCI network, a very highly placed network in Cambodia that was constantly reporting particularly Chinese weapons coming in to the port of Sihanoukville, Cambodia, right. by ship. And uh, th then uh, the CIA continuously denied that the weapons were coming into Cambodia that way and coming across the border, that everything was coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The Ho Chi Minh Trail's about 800 miles, mountains, swamps, sure. rivers, through other countries and so on, whereas the weapons that were shipped into Sihanoukville were picked up by Hock Lee Trucking Company and taken down to the Cambodian border 67 miles away on flat roads that the United States had built for Cambodia in the early 1960s, right? okay? Yeah. So easy peasy, you know, not 800 miles and yeah. all this stuff. No mountains, no uh, no tack air. No tack, no, right, no, no, no constant air attacks. Yeah, because during our SOG missions, we were prohibited from using any tack air. Right. On a SOG missions into Cambodia, across the fence. Right. But we only went 20 or 30 clicks in, whereas this area you're outlining that was a pipeline for it, it was a pipeline and 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 uh, it was uh, uh, the counterintelligence chief James Jesus Angleton at CIA <laughs> who Jesus. totally who totally rejected any information from the naval intelligence in right. Cambodia for the for the whole war it turned out after we uh, did the incursion into Cambodia uh, Prime Minister Lan Nol's brother, Lan Nan, t turned over to us a room full of boxes, beacons boxes of manifests and uh, bills of lading and documents 
that showed at least 77,000 tons of communist munitions being unloaded in Cambodia, uh, and probably a lot more because there was a lot of unidentified miscellaneous cargo right. and stuff. <laughs> so anyway, that was there was there was a big bunch of weaponry coming through that nobody was paying attention to, and they kept the air war going against the Ho Chi Minh Trail by naval air and by air force air for sure. the duration and of Marine the war Corps too. Yeah, yeah, and so getting back to the Pueblo, yeah, and this and. Um, that when you tied in with a Johnny Walker sp- spy ring, turning over to all that those charts or the, um, the codes, codes, right? So after the Pueblo goes down, at some point, those that encryption materials land in Cambodia. The Russians are working them there, and they have the pads. Like you said, they they had an inside seat. They they had an inside seat. Uh, probably what they did was. Uh, I, I, I attended the USS Pueblo Article 32 hearings in Coronado, and what turned out was uh, the uh, officer that was in charge, if they were going to be captured, was supposed to use thermite grenades on the crypto gear, the, the right. hardware for the uh, decryption and encryption. The previous commanding officer of the Pueblo, who had just been relieved weeks earlier— by the new commander, uh, had removed all the thermite grenades from the Pueblo because he was afraid somebody might accidentally <laughs> shoot, uh, light went off and burned through the hole and uh, the hull and and sink the ships. So they had no thermite. The officer in charge did take a fire axe as it was became clear they were going to be captured and pounded on the cases of the crypto gear, but there was no significant damage done. And those were captured and, as we understand, sent, I, th- I think it was to East Germany then. I think that's where they dealt with this stuff. And I think what happens is they reverse engineered all the crypto stuff so that they could dis- disperse it out to areas where there was uh, conflicts going on. Sure, which, in- which included uh, that site in Cambodia yes. where they could monitor the traffic and um – have such uh, insights. I, I, yeah, I didn't tell you. The, uh, after, uh, after the incursion started, I, I had befriended the uh, provincial governor there, Um Samut. He said, I want to meet you on Khao Tunse Island uh, next Wednesday or something. Right. So I got <clears> the Sea Wolves <throat> to take me up and drop me off there. Uh, and the Sea Wolves, uh, just for oh, our that's audience. The Navy, I'm sorry, that's the, the, the Navy gunship. premier premier. A helicopter, helicopter gunships, outstanding which, troops, which we had with each uh, uh, PBR uh, River Division, right? To, you know, to, to scramble and fly cover for them, and so on. Well, anyway, they picked me up and dropped me off. I had to drop down from a skid onto a, a pier because there was nowhere to land. Uh, <laughs> I met Um Samud and his guys up there, and he said, "Why don't you go take a look at the?" It, 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 it Island had been a small resort that Prince Sihanouk used for visiting dignitaries. They had little cottages along the beach and so on. Sure, sure. And then a main house where they took their meals. Well, I went in and looked, and there were industrial shelves emptied and uh, uh, UHF and VHF antennas on about a 60-foot tower sticking out of this building. And I'm a amateur radio guy, and they were aimed toward Hatien, where the where the— the uh, Navy LSD was, 
that provided all our secure crypto communications in and out. Sure. So I go, oh, interesting. And then there's coax cables coming down from the antennas that are Russian with Cyrillic writing on them and all this kind of stuff that they had left in place, but they had cut them off and taken all the gear. And what was the time frame on that? Uh, this they said they had left maybe five days earlier. This was, uh, I think, May 10th. And, and I found in one of the uh, cottages under a dust bunny the masthead of a Pravda newspaper dated May 5th, 1970. This is on no. May 10th. And so I think th I now, in retrospect, I think they left it there for a screw you on the way out. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, but anyway, so, so it, they, they had just left. They let them get out on their own and take their gear with them and stuff. But they had been reading our naval crypto message traffic and, and don't forget, the ship is not just handling Hatien's traffic; it's handling all the naval traffic that you know that's which on included the, the SOG traffic. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, sure. And so, um, just from the SOG side of things, I just wanted to present just to talk about. I'll just recap a few things here before we get back to your more specifics on this. Um, and on, on a personal level, our team we were spiraling into an LZ. And fortunately, our indigenous soldiers saw a wire across it, and it was attached to a 500-pound bomb. They knew we were coming. They had time to get a bomb that didn't work and put a, a trip wire across the LZ. I don't, I don't know how they saw it. I'm glad they did. RT Idaho was in Laos on a recon mission when a Cuban came up and clear began talking to the recon team. He knew their names. And he and the uh, change of staff. We had one member that had been on the team for uh, three months. He had gone home, tour duty done. And the the third case that we know specifically of was a recon team that was in a target, going to a, a NVA POW camp where they had Americans. And that Pat Eddington and his team uh, was heading tour towards that base when. On a clear frequency, the the uh, guy came on in English said, "I'm the commander of this base. I know where you're going. Your name's Pat Eddington. You're on this team, and if you continue, uh, by the time you get here, all the Americans will be killed. You have a choice: leave or I'll execute these Americans." He left. He didn't want to have that on his conscience. And then, last but not least, a book that will be released soon on a Special Forces SOG reconnaissance team leader, Lieutenant Dick Thompson who Jocko Willink has interviewed on Jocko Podcast 204, 205, and 206. Um, he was on a mission, and he had encryption, encrypted FM radio with the encryption in place. So anybody he talked to on that radio had to have a likewise encrypted radio set up. And he's on the march, going through, not march, but he's in the jungle moving. And up on that radio came a funeral dirge playing, and a woman came on and said, Lieutenant Dick Thompson, we know who you are and where you are, what your mission is, name the team members on their encrypted device. So those are four examples from SOG where the compromise is obvious and blatant. 
And that's why it's so critical to talk about it today to come back because your insights have another side to this. Well, I do know uh, one of my classmates and who was in the Navy with me, he ran the special boat unit out of uh, the Philippines, out of Subic, that provided the delivery boats for the SEAL teams. So right. they'd always go TAD into Vietnam and so on, in North Vietnamese. Um, he, he had the same thing with the broadcast. This was on uh, Hanoi, Hanna, or whoever the broad, broadcast was. Right. Uh, where they would call out his name and the SEAL team guys that he was carrying. Really? Yeah, and just said, you, you know, you're going to die if you keep doing this stuff. We know you're on your way up the Perfume River or whatever, yeah, yeah. you know. And so uh, they, they had that compromise. Also, when I found the uh, abandoned Soviet communications intercept, interception station on uh, Kautunse Island, uh, the I, I don't remember the designation of the unit, but the um, the encryption units for FM voice radios that we had on the swift boats and on the PBRs. Right. Uh, if I recall correctly, it had uh, pentagonal shaped rubber feet on it, and in the dust on these shelves were those footprint, those odd footprints. You know, from, right, from that unit. the ones taken from right. The so they were reading our our tactical comms. God. You know, along the river and the canal. In fact, they waited and ambushed. We had we had a gap in the uh, the boat uh, barrier along the thing, and they sent some uh, what are called MSRs, river minesweepers. They're big, slow boats as compared to the swift boat, the, sure. the uh, PBRs, which are very fast, right, and heavily armed. Well, they sent two up to fill the hole, and they knew, and they ambushed those two boats. They killed one sailor and wounded all five on the boats. And so that was the bloodiest event while I was there, just a couple of weeks after I got there. So they, they knew what we were doing. So you landed in country when? I landed in country uh, in uh, mid-December 69. I, I was originally assigned to Admiral Zumwalt's intelligence staff in Saigon, I did that for a while. I hated it. I was like water mine <laughs> warfare officer or something like that. Yeah. So I lobbied the Nilo uh, boss to take the Hatien Nilo post on the Cambodian border because it was quite clear Cambodia was heating up and 1970 was likely oh, to sure. be the year of Cambodia action. Absolutely. And, of course, April 30th was the the launch of the, the first incursion, right? Correct. And— uh, but even, uh, remind me to return to that, because you have some insights that I've never heard before because of your unique position. But getting back to the compromise side of things, was there other follow-up there or um, anything else from your perspective? Well, on uh, through some retired naval intelligence guys I know in Washington, I heard that um, uh, let's uh, a, a rear admiral who was World War II vintage was on this after there's a compromise when they find out there's a, finally in 84 they have to do a whole uh reverse analysis of how much it could have, have been Johnny Walker spiring is after they healed. discovered it right. in well, 85 I think you yes, said yes sir it was well what the, <clears throat> this I know this particular person was on the committee that was supposed to do the post analysis to figure out how to protect against it in the future, the future sure. and all this stuff and all we got back was 
Geez, I, I don't remember. You know, it was. I think we met uh, on Tuesday afternoons a couple times a month. What? To, and, I, and I was thinking this would be a serious deal that they'd oh, yeah. bore down on and stuff like that. Well, anyway, apparently it wasn't. Well, and again, um, we have to refer to our, uh, take a moment to refer to our fan belt inspectors, also known as the FBI at that <laughs> time, because Johnny Walker's wife tried to turn him in. 1971. Yes, and so instead, and they blew her off, thinking she she apparently had had a few drinks before she called. And a disgruntled wife, a, another disgruntled ex-wife, and so yes, so needless to say, that that went off such a long time. People just that was probably one of the most serious spy cases in American history. Astounding, by by death. So, anyways, any more follow up on that uh, for the because that's why. Um, to this day, in retrospect, at least we're now we're learning about it to be able to try to document some of that, because the missions, no matter who, it's like your PBRs, our guys going across the fence, coming up against some stacked odds we never knew about. We knew we were compromised. We didn't know how much. In in August of 1969, I think it was, the Cambodian army captured uh, a, a U.S. Navy boat loaded with personnel, which they said had accidentally strayed into Cambodia. Apparently, no, it was a SEAL mission that they knew was coming, and they got caught. Now, they didn't hurt them or anything. I think Sihanouk kept them and paraded them around Phnom Penh for a month. I think they were fairly decently treated, and then they were released back to the United States. So, Unlike North Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, right, not like, not like North Vietnam. But... Uh, that also explains why the naval staff was upset when I got underway with the Cambodian Navy in, um, it must have been uh, May, I think it was May, uh, April or May 1970, um, when they came down and asked for a secret shipment of weapons because they had, the North Vietnamese, I think it was the 9th NVA Regiment had uh, surrounded two Cambodian Marine battalions in Kep, Cambodia, which was about eight miles north of the border uh, on the on the coast of the Gulf of Thailand, and they were out of ammunition. They had no food. They were eating rats and squirrels and stuff, and uh, they asked for two thousand equipment for two thousand people. Um, we sent that. I sent that back to Saigon right away. The Cambodian ship came down, and Cambodian naval officers asked for this stuff. And since I speak French, that I got sent out. Um, I, I reported it to Saigon. I immediately got a message back from Admiral Zumwalt and N2. Take all your thirty addressy, you know, cop, carbon copy guys off your naval messages on this subject matter because of the sensitivity of Cambodia. Right. Uh, report only to Admiral Zumwalt, uh, General Abrams at MACV. Who was the top commander for all military all forces in South, in South Vietnam. And to the uh, CIA station chief and the U.S. ambassador in Saigon. And this is, going to, this is going immediately to the White House Situation Room for discussion. Whoa, so what, I mean, that must have, that must have put a little starch in your pants. 
Well, I mean, reading a note like that. I well, mean, it was serious. It was serious. It was oh, serious. Yeah. It, it actually got me in trouble. My my administrative <laughs> officer. Each of the, the the Vietnam was divided into regions. We had right. coastal and riverine intelligence zones. There was an administrative off uh, uh, naval officer sure. who handled like you know five or six nilos in each area. He was down in the province capital, which was 60 miles away from the border. So I'd go down there. He and then and then there was a CIA guy, the province guy who ran it. They started picking my brain for well, what's going on? What are you doing up there? What's going on with the you know? And I just said, I'm sorry. I'm told not to speak to anybody about this. You know what I mean? Yeah. He really pissed off the, my administrative guy, and so he was instrumental at the end in just having ordering me sent to. Sea float in the Nam can for the last last two months, six or, tour, or eight dude. weeks of my tour, <laughs> <laughs> which was the most. We had the heaviest combat. Yeah, We're, and and the guy that ultimately got I, I got medevaced. The guy that was sent uh, was there four hours and was shot through the neck. By the way, the previous Nilo had been killed down there in August, and they had nobody from August through the end of September to do the naval intelligence stuff there. So that, that guy got killed. Then they sent the guy from the staff down right. who had been Nilo trained. He was there four hours and got shot through the neck and then had to be recuperated and uh, Medivac, medically yeah. m- medically discharged from the Navy. Sure. Oh my so God. anyway, my, my hepatitis medevac actually probably saved my life. <laughs> At the end of your tour of duty. So as the incursion starts... Where were you when the incursion started? Because you also had some great insights there about the, again, the communists knew that that incursion was coming. And then what did they do? I mean, I remember seeing pictures and photographs saying, look at all we got. We had this incursion. We got this many weapons. We got these rice piles. We got other things that we should have been here a long time ago, which I agree. They should have done the incursion back in 64 as well as cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 64, not 72 when they tried to do it with Lamsong. But talk to a little bit, because you had— Well, where, where, you, where was I? We, I, I mean, we were—I we were, uh, also—I uh, went out with the Army. Uh, this, we, I, was, I was posted to an Army advisory group, small group of three guys, that we lived in a house, an old French doctor's house, um, Right in Hatian, right, right near the border. Um, he, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember now the sequence of events. But, but basically, uh, we we started to, after a guy got killed, a Navy guy got killed on the boats. It was like the gloves are off now. We started our own Navy fire team of off-duty boat guys, right. and me and a couple of other guys that were stationed there, Navy guys. Uh, we stole some ammunition from the armory, uh, <laughs> and we'd we'd shoot mortars at the Viet Cong base in Hat Tien, right on the right on the border, sure. right on the Cambodian border. And we actually got a secondary explosion. I went out the next day with the Army 525 military intelligence guy. That's their super spook thing. Sure. 
to see what the damage was. We were going to go out to the border because you can see behind this mountain where the Viet Cong base. So we got almost to the border and we got mortared <laughs> from them. It's like, you know, okay, you guys want to shoot? We'll yeah. shoot too. So anyway, I had to pull off, spend eight hours in a, a dike road in the ditch with my radio uh, calling in airstrikes on the place, which went on for two weeks, 24 hours a day, which was amazing. But anyway, so so we were under attack in hot pursuit, basically, because they were shooting at us yeah, from yeah. Cambodia. That was one. I saw the message that was eventually produced by Mac V on it, and it frankly, let's say, uh, elaborated a little more on it, and you know, <laughs> you know, beefed it up a little. No, they exaggerated. The they military? exaggerated. No, they exaggerated. I'm shocked. I'm totally shocked. But anyway, it was all part of the deal of uh, okay, they're shooting at us from Cambodia now. This is, ha- and it wasn't just happening in Hatien; it was doing it other places along the border. So uh, it 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 was clear that we were going to go into Cambodia. It, it looked, I shouldn't say it was clear. It, we were hoping we would go into Cambodia because of uh, the weapons stuff and everything. And you, you specifically asked me first, where was I when the incursion started? Yeah. At our area, what happened was we woke up one morning in Hat Tien, and there was a floating bridge across the Yangton River, and the 9th Vietnamese Mobile Division or something was hauling into Cambodia at 55 miles an hour, you know, with those big APCs oh, sure. and stuff. And you're the last to know. Yeah, we're the last to know, you know. And wow. so I said, okay, so they're going, okay, fine. They're going in finally, so maybe they'll find some stuff. I hope they're going to go to Secret Zone 3 and grab these weapons, all these weapons that are we'd, we had interrogated. And uh, learned about cap- through your intel. Yeah. Through guys that were actually working there and stuff. So, you know, we went back up to the house, and there's a message there. Uh, uh, you, you are to report to become the intelligence officer for this whatever the army, uh, Vietnamese army group was, which has a, a colonel, a U.S. army colonel as their advisor. Right. Uh, in vicinity, took Mayus, Cambodia. So, uh, and I don't even remember, I think the Sea Wolves, again, the Navy sure. gunships took me up there and we followed the roads to, and then we finally saw them. It looked like a wagon, you know, the wagon trains used to circle sure. up at, at night, night, you know. Yeah. That, that's what they did with their APCs and stuff. So we found them and they put me down. And I checked in, they, they left, and I checked in with the colonel and so on. And he said that they had, uh, it was really impressive how far they had gotten in Cambodia. They really hauled into, into Cambodia. And he said they had sent a, a unit out to the secret zone place, and they had captured a lot of weapons and so on. And they had laid out, they had a photographer there, and they had laid out on white canvas tarpaulins representative weapons that they sure. had found, you know, big mortars, small mortars, w- rifles, machine guns, RPGs, anti- RPGs, RPGs yeah, yeah. All, you know, everything. But I was kind of surprised because it was just like, you know, maybe 15 feet long, two, uh, two rows, two, two rows of stuff. And I said to him, I said, is that all you got? And he goes, the colonel says, well, uh, I don't know. I said, I said, did you? And he said, no, the Sergeant Trung or whatever his name was went. We'll have to get the sergeant. And ask. so they got the sergeant up and asked him. I said, how much did you get out of these out of the secret zone? 
oh, truckloads. He said truck, in, in Vietnamese, he said, and it was interpreted truckloads. And I said, well, how many? And he'd just say truckloads, you know? Ooh. And so this went on for a few minutes. And so I finally got the colonel, the American colonel. So I said, you didn't get that much stuff. There was, if, this, if, the, if half the intel reports are correct, you should have had tons of stuff up there. And no, they didn't. Well, and, and what I had figured happened, happened. They had, the, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese had already in the Viet Cong, knew this incursion was coming, and they had already, I think starting six weeks before, had started that to move long. their operations in further into Cambodia away from the border. Because I think they knew already, as far as the U.S. incursion was concerned, it was going to be 30 clicks, 30 days. You know, so that's like 18 miles right. in. Um, so anyway, it was obvious to me that they had moved it in. Later, out, I, later on, I found out, that they had moved the whole Sihanoukville Trail, where the Ho Chi Minh Trail came through Cambodia, inland, you know, I don't know, probably 80 or 100 miles or something like that, to stay away from the incursion right. that they knew was coming. Damn. Talk about a compromise. Again, that's one more aspect of them being like a step or two ahead of everything because of their quiet and well-kept secrets of what they're doing from either from radio signals or, or human assets on the ground. They, I, think they, I think I read in some of the books that in World War II, the Russian intelligence, I forget what MKVD then or whatever it was, was probably the best of the intelligence services even, even back then. No kidding. Yeah. And that's just one little sidebar <clears throat> to all this. And uh, so you're there for that historic moment in time. Of course, you know, you're being a little modest here, too, because as I recall, when we chatted last, when you ran some of these missions, there were some one-man missions where you're going out, not like a recon team, but a car 15, 60 rounds, or 100, I mean, 100, 600 rounds, and then hand grenades, and maybe an M79 sawed off. None of that with you. When you went out by yourself, you carried what? I carried a nine millimeter Belgian Browning tuck, tucked in my waistband. <laughs> did you have an extra magazine? Larry, I did. I, did. I had or? a little AWOL bag where I carry a bottle of scotch and and extra oh, bullets and and one other clip <laughs> for the for the thing. But but uh, along the lines of security, yeah, I just figured out on my own before I knew any of this other stuff was going on about compromise, especially if I was going to do one man things yeah, in yeah. Cambodia. I would tell nobody. I mean, even my the people that live there, the intelligence guys and stuff like that, I just wouldn't tell them because if you tell nobody, you have some mission security and they nobody can set up against you. You don't know sure, I mean you don't sure. have to, they don't have time to. And so I just decided I would not tell anybody until the mission was over, you know. And and that worked very successfully for me. As, and, and again, not even knowing that everything had been compromised. <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. And there was a couple times you did go out by yourself and you're just going out into Cambodia, which who knows what you're going to run into on a couple of those missions. I I remember that from our chats, you know. Well, I had some confidence. I knew what was going on and who, what the guys were that were there and all this kind of thing. Uh, we used to go initially, like in February, we could, there's a market right across the border in Tanhan, Cambodia, uh, uh, off the, the river. 
And we'd go over there and, uh, you know, buy hammocks and flip-flops and things like that. And then we'd lay sensors. Remember those sensors? Sure. We'd lay sensors on the trails where they'd come across at night, you know, with Were weapons and things like that. Were those individual ones or the three pods? They had two pods with a uh, central one. T- well, let's see. The ones I remember were um, uh, – there were two, I think. Uh, what one was a, me- a metal detector. It would detect ferrous metals. Right. And so you'd bury them, and they had two little like, grass-looking antennas yeah. coming out. And then I think there was another one that was a uh, urine sensor. So they could tell if guys who hadn't washed, you know, were sure. coming coming through and stuff like that. And then uh, actually Admiral Zumwalt, uh, or after, this was after the incursion had started, He his, his son was a swift boat driver. He sent him up for me to be his tour guide in the border area. So we took my Jeep and <laughs> went into Cambodia. <laughs> the sea wolves would take me in sometimes and drop me off and uh, by myself and things like that. But I, I have to say, honestly, you know, I got 11 medals for my tour. <laughs> but I said the, the best accolade I ever got was uh, speaking to the Special Forces Association uh, oh, meeting in ago. Los Angeles right. where we sat before <laughs> I always remember this beforehand we were having cokes or something before the meeting started yes. and I said to the SOG there were two or three SOG guys there I said you know you guys were freaking crazy for going in there with teams of six <laughs> and you know just a couple of heavy weapons and so on and I you know in North getting dropped in North Vietnam or getting dropped in where there's an NVA uh, division or regiment or something yeah. in northern Cambodia. I said, I would never do that stuff, you know. So I gave my talk, and the same guys came up to me and said, well, we got, we heard your talk. We want to tell you we think you were freaking crazy <laughs> to go in alone without an extraction plan, without helos standing by, without heavy weapons, and so on. I yeah. go, so I, I said, I guess you pick your crazy. <laughs> and, and uh, D, welcome to the club. <laughs> That's why uh, the the story and and the books. Even though you use a fictionalized character, M- Medici in the book, I think that there's a lot of personal things that you have in there that are just great reads. Well, all the missions and, uh, actually happen. Is that right? Yeah. So which was which is your favorite one? I remember you talking about the uh, um, the one where you went out by yourself. Of course, there's a Let's Do Takayo. Takayo. And that's like, oh my God! <laughs> what was that? Twenty-three. One, th- yeah, indeed. As we ran into the colonel from the five twenty-fifth military group from the Delta. <laughs> yeah, they're right. Yeah, they send the DMAC colonel up with his aide and a little a little helo with. I think we had one one machine gunner on one side or something like that. Right. I should I should tell you the story. One of the things that happened besides this trip, on the way in, we saw a Cambodian uh, convoy get ambushed by who knows who in the hidden in the bushes and things like that. Right. And the the <laughs> I don't know if you guys had the same thing, but often these officers come in and they get somebody else to take them in for a daring mission, you know, flying oh, sure. over something. Yeah. And then they put themselves in for silver stars, you know what I mean, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. So This the, thing was flying so the guys, So we're flying over. We're way in Cambodia, and this is happening. And they said, well, let's go down and attack them, you know. And 
And I go, no, <laughs> what are you crazy? There's 51 caliber machine guns down there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can see them. And, and, and they say, oh, well, yeah, well, we can. I said, and I said, by the way, you have an SCI clearance. You're not even supposed to be out here in, the, in <laughs> Cambodia. With, you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they didn't have, they shouldn't, if you had those clearances, you weren't supposed to be out in combat areas, you know, where you could right. get, be captured and stuff. Anyway, I, I don't know. Did you want me to read some of yeah, this? Yeah, a little or? bit, please. Because that, it's just fun stuff. Well, let, let, let me uh, just put it in context with this trip. What the reason for this trip and the way the reason the DMAC G2 was there was there had been uh, reports of uh, Cambodian uh, soldiers uh, executing. Viet, ethnic Vietnamese in Takayo right. in the schoolyard. And we, basically, he wanted to go up to find that and to confirm it. And we did. We, it was, we were there the day after it happened. There were still bullet holes, blood on the ground, you know, blood on the walls and all this kind of thing. The purpose of that was to scare the ethnic Vietnamese. The, the Cambodians, we didn't really understand this. The Cambodians and the Vietnamese do not get along and do not think much of each other. The, the Lan Nol government felt that all these ethnic Vietnamese that sl had come over the border from the close parts of, of uh, Vietnam were potentially traitors to the cause. And so they wanted them to stampede them out of uh, Cambodia. And so they did this this was actually uh, Lon Knowles, no, Lon Knowles Praetorian Guard that were sent up with him when he did the coup right. in okay. Cambodia yeah. by the special forces in Nha Trang, actually. But they were, camp they were uh, sure. KKK guys. They did the, uh, the killing of these ethnic Vietnamese. And the point was to scare the Dickens out of them and stampede the ethnic Vietnamese in the border out of Cambodia back into Vietnam. It worked. They killed a lot of them. The Mekong was at, at uh, Tan Chau, the dam was clogged with bodies. For, no kidding. For a while. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was just, it was really a terrible thing. But, at, and in Ha Tien, little dinky Ha Tien, we had 18,000 Vietnamese, ethnic Vietnamese from Cambodia refugees living in tents around the Hat Tien area. 18,000. And that's just where we were, not, sure. up, not up further, you know what I mean? So anyway, it, anyway that, that worked, and they, they stampeded them out. So we were there to confirm that, and we confirmed it. But this is, this is just a typical day in Nilo Hat Tien, <laughs> so it's called Let's Do, Let's Do Takayo. In the morning, Medici had a throbbing hangover from carousing with the river rats and junk sailors the night before. He couldn't eat breakfast, so he sat unshaven and shirtless in fatigue cutoffs <laughs> drinking soda. He slumped in a wood crate chair, flip-flops propped on the patio wall, gazing at the Gulf of Thailand. He felt like a sleazy lizard, poisons oozing from his pores while the sun slowly raised his body temperature. His eyes squinted behind dark aviator sunglasses that seemed entirely inadequate this rotten morning. Something appeared in the line of sight between his sweating legs. At first he thought it was the cobra, but then a human head appeared and bobbed higher with each step. It belonged to a tall, blonde, meticulously uniformed American Army colonel, followed by his puffing aide-de-camp. The colonel reached a point on the path where he could see over the wall into the patio. 
He sized up its height, then vaulted the wall on one hand, landing lightly on the concrete. The pudgy aide clattered over the wall and rolled onto the patio, breathless. Morning, soldier, the colonel said. Know where I can find Nilo Hatien, Navy Lieutenant Medici? Medici blinked at the colonel, turned his head left then right to survey the patio, and returned to the colonel. You talking to me, grunt? <laughs> the colonel's nostrils twitched. Is this advisory team five, Hatien? Yep. I would like to speak to your commanding officer. Sure. He's Vice Admiral Zumwalt at Naval Headquarters in Saigon. I can get him on the radio in about 15 minutes if you really need to talk to him. Are you Lieutenant Medici? <laughs> yep. Thomas N. 728471, United States Naval Reserve. Who the hell are you? Medici read the name Carruthers on the Colonel's uniform patch. I'm Colonel Carruthers, CO of the 525 Military Intelligence Group for the Delta. He extended his hand to Medici, who sat up and shook it. My aide, Captain Torgerson. Medici waved at the captain and returned the gesture. Sit down, Colonel. It's too hot to stand. <laughs> the Colonel pulled up an ammo chair. He put his feet up on the wall and surveyed the gulf from the river mouth north past the Pirate Islands to the profile of the Elephant Mountains in Cambodia. He took it in all slowly and gave Medici the feeling he was intuiting what Hatien was all about. Quick study, Medici thought. I'll do business with this guy. This beats the shit out of Canto, Carruthers said. Frank Brown told me about you. I thought I'd come up to see what this wild man, Nilo Hatien, could show me about Cambodia. He laughed. Medici grinned. I'm feeling less than wild this morning. He rubbed his temples slowly in an attempt to snap out of the hangover. How'd you get here anyway? I didn't hear a chopper. Came in at the Navy base in town last night. Lieutenant Hayward told me I could find you up here. I thought we could do a little intel. Medici sat up, removed his sunglasses, and looked at Carruthers. What do you want, Colonel? Let's do Takeo, the Colonel said. Oh, shit, Medici thought. Here we go again. He sensed the hollow in the pit of his stomach. Colonel, it's pronounced Takayo, not Takeo. Why there? It's been pretty quiet since the 9th Vietnamese Division swept through two months ago. No real operational significance, just, well, curiosity. Right, curiosity. Medici replaced his sunglasses and gazed seaward. Sorry, Colonel, I don't do things for mere curiosity anymore. I'm getting short, sort of. Four months left. Commander Holland thought you'd be willing to help a friend of his, Carruthers said slowly. He stared off at the islands. Medici swallowed. Carruthers had him. He played the one card Medici would respond to, his loyalty to Commander Holland. You talked to Holland? Yes, for two days. Medici drew his lips against his teeth and nodded his head rhythmically. You got a chopper? All mine, down at the Navy base. When can you be ready? Ten minutes. <laughs> I just like the, that <laughs> you there with your son, well, Medici, of course, <laughs> the fictional you. But that's just amazing stuff. That happened, by the way. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I love it. But then uh, um, we haven't covered this yet, too, but there was a time you had to go, I don't know if it was after the incursion, but you had to go um, to an island, and it was a top-secret mission, and then you get there, two people pick you up, and they knew about your top-secret oh, mission. Oh, it's two, two different missions. The the. The island one was the uh, the Russian uh, 
communications outpost. Right. Okay. That that's what that was with uh, the province governor Um Samut. Uh, the the second one you mentioned was the mission to Sienikville that was supposed to be uh, right. top secret. The uh, when the incursion happened. The North Vietnamese did a couple things. They tried to surround and isolate Phnom Penh, the capital. Uh, they blew up the transmitter of uh, Radio Phnom Penh, which Lan Nol had been using to talk to everybody in camp, all the citizens in so Cambodia. So by now, Lan Nol was in power. Yeah, he took over March 18th. Sihanouk was out. Sihanouk was out. March 18th? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um Okay, so uh, what the North Vietnamese did was they 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 surrounded Phnom Penh. They they rocketed uh, Ponchatong Airport. That's the airport for Phnom Penh. Constantly, so planes couldn't come in or could come in at risk. They also ganged up on the Mekong River, which goes through Phnom Penh, to shoot all the ships and naval vessels and anybody who's trying to resupply Phnom Penh by river, which is the typical way for heavy sure. lift uh, supply and stuff. So we didn't know whether the La Nol government was going to fall. You know what I mean? So anyway, they, they, they had sent, the U.S. sent on this top secret mission an LST with a substitute radio transmitter to be set up in Sihanoukville. To uh, so that La Nol's people could communicate with the Cambodian uh, populace, since the radio Phnom Penh had been blown up in in uh, in Phnom Penh. Then they thought that was a good opportunity. I got sent on this mission not to deal with the transmitter. They had other guys to do right. that, but to do a port survey of the port of Sihanoukville, where the warehouses were that housed the communist weapons, you know, for sure. storage, for transshipment and so on. And we hadn't been there for seven or eight years, and no American had been in there to do what the Navy calls a port survey. It, it's where the piers are, where all the buoys are, where the channels are and what the depths are See to get in. how deep the uh, soils are beneath the water. Right, right. So you have to know all that stuff. And so— um, I got sent out on this LST to do this during this mission, which we accomplished. Your top secret mission. On my top secret mission. So I'm in civvies. I bought civvies in Saigon and um, <laughs> and a slide rule. I've got a little slide rule from some USAID guy friend. You so know, you look, look official. I look like an official government do-why, you know. And, uh, I, so, and I had my camera with me. I decided to leave my pistol. I had my pistol, to, and I said, no, this is stupid, you know. Yeah. So I left my pistol on the ship, walked down to the end of the pier, started doing my photographic tour, I thought, and a Jeep comes roaring up, and who's in it but the two guys that were the officers on the Cambodian ship that I arranged the weapons uh, delivery right. with. And so I, my immediate thought is, how the hell did they know? This is supposed to be a top secret mission. How did they, the hell did they know here? And that, that's when I really thought there is nothing secure you oh, know, yeah. anymore. So anyway, but I was friends with them. So it was all bon homie, you know, and stuff. And so they, but they said, came up to you. You're like, they came up and I said, WTF. Right. right. And, and so I, so they go, come on, I, we'll take you on a tour of any place you want to go in Sihanoukville. And I go, okay. So they took me to all the places. I took all the pictures. I was also supposed to find out 
how to take out the port if we had to, if the Lon Nol government sure. flipped or fell, you know what I mean? And yeah. they started sending ships into of weapons into Sienogville again. So anyway, I didn't get to go and specifically to find out that. But at the end of the day, they they brought me to this bistro, this little bar, you know, and the port captain for Sienogville showed up and we all sat around drinking beers. And I said to him, what's that funny little vessel sitting out there in the quay wall? The French had built them a harbor, a enclosed harbor. And he goes, oh, that's the uh, Cantha Bofa. It's a suction dredge, like a vacuum. Really? And I said, well, what's that for? And he said, the way the French built this thing with the currents along the coast, if we don't constantly vacuum out the, sea, the quay silt. wall, it'll silt up in six weeks, so it's unusable. No. And so I go, <laughs> bingo. All we got to do is take out the dredge if we want to shut down the, the port. One man seal mission, or they can send a Nilo out. <laughs> uh, it's luck. It was it was it was blind luck. But anyway, so I but got, got my got mission done. I got my mission done. I got the port survey done. I got photo. I think I took seven rolls of thirty six shot triax film. Sure. And um, that's the good stuff. Yeah. And then as a result of that, that's when. They said, go talk to the SEAL commander, the, the Naval Special Warfare Group commander who well, ran the SEALs. Let me just turn to your other book, <laughs> The Monk, here. Because we uh, – <laughs> so this is near the end of your tour of duty. Right. And uh, I, th I, th I think you're very modest about all this. And, uh, you know, uh, at the end, you are told – I forget how this happens. But you're told to report um, – We'll start here with uh, August the 14th. Commander McQuillan asked Medici, who is you, but the fictional you in here, uh, the 24-year-old looked five years older than when McQuillan had last seen him, and it had only been nine weeks. His face was lined and drawn. Well, all's well that ends well, but... Did you have to shoot one of my guys, McQuillan last? <laughs> Medici shrugged his shoulders, then lifted his arms in supplication. He would never live that down. You could have told me one of your guys was going on his mission, and I'd call that a conspicuous omission. Let bygones be bygones, McQuillan said, waving his hand. You did a good job, a fine job up in Sinochville. I've seen the photography, the port survey, which you just talked about, was first rate. You done good, my boy. Medici arched his eyebrow at my boy. <laughs> but Quillen said, shut the door, Lieutenant. Medici stood and closed the door to the outer office where two officers and two enlisted men pretended not to overhear their conversation. Medici said, you really did your mission fine, Lieutenant. No fuss, no bother, no support. No problems with the natives. We like your style. Medici wondered who we was. They sat in silence for a minute while McQuellen folded his hands. How would you like to be my XO of Naval Special Warfare Group? It's a lieutenant commander's billet and will bring your second spot promotion in six months. I could use you. Medici let out a slow breath. He wasn't expecting this. He was definitely on a fast career track if he took the job. But in an instant, 
He flashed on Danton, throwing the chair. This is another officer you had a class with earlier. And then on his own giddiness, when General Lonno formally requested that he be appointed U.S. Naval Attaché to Phnom Penh, and the disappointment he felt when Washington sent a career officer instead, and the exhausting board of inquiry after Sinukville. Commander, I'm very flattered by the offer, but I am not SEAL or UDT trained. I'm not a killer commando type. I'm a collection guy. That's what I do. McQuillan interrupted him. Yes, but you can think. That's what I need here. Commander, I only had three months left of my tour, my second tour in Vietnam. I come from a family of lawyers, and my sights are set on law school as soon as my service is up. I am enormously honored that you would think of me to serve as your XO, but I think I need to get to law school before I'm much older. Medici stood up. Sorry, Commander, I have to decline. McQuellen raised his arms, palms up, in a, what you gonna do, gesture. Well, you know, where to find me if you change your mind, he smiled. Medici extended his hand and shook McQuellen's, then walked out of the special warfare forever. Saigon, 1970. <laughs> so after all that time there, you, you obviously impressed some folks along the way. And uh, uh, that brings us down to the close to the end here. Anything else, Larry, or during that time of duty or anything else you want to uh, bring up as we uh, wrap it up? No, I think we're good to go. It's been a pleasure, and, and I'm honored that you'd uh, talk to me about this. Well, this whole thing about the solid compromise, it's the first time to do an overview from a different perspective, which you're able to confirm and knowing the history of the USS Pueblo, including attending those hearings later. And I just, uh, we appreciate you coming in today. So thanks to all the men and women in our armed services who have fought and bled for this country. We also thank Border Patrol, law enforcement, first responders, EMT, corrections officers, the medical staffs at our hospitals today. And um, we also thank the men and women who served in years past, men like Larry Sarah. We thank you for that service. We also remember and salute the men and women of our country who did not return. Today, we still have 1,581 Americans listed as missing in action from the war in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, 50 of which are Green Berets from the Secret War in Laos and Cambodia. And again, as always, we thank Jocko Willing Productions, his staff and his crew, in conjunction with Saw Chronicles to make this podcast possible. Thank you, and God bless America. Thank you.